Let's go live with Jack Kelly. Welcome to the one-of-a-kind LinkedIn live show that will help you with your job search and advancing your career. We will bring in educated career experts who will share their insights and give you inside tips on how to be successful in your job search. Now let's get into today's show with your host, Jack Kelly. So welcome to Let's Go Live with Jack Kelly. And today we have a fantastic group of people and let's just jump into it. Well, before we jump into it, just to uh, let you know, the whole idea behind this series is for compliance, legal risk, anti-money laundering, related folks, and even people not in the space who want to know the trends, what's happening, particularly what's happening within the whole regulatory space. And secondarily, what does it mean for jobs and opportunities? You know, what areas are going to be hot, which not so hot, which is cold. So this way you can kind of figure out the direction of your career. So with that, let's just jump right into it. And uh, Jeff, maybe you could introduce yourself and then Chris and then Anna. Great. Thanks, Jack and, and Eric. Thanks for having me here. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with Anna and Chris as well. Uh, my name is, again, is Jeff Martino. I'm a partner at Baker Hostetler. I'm in the antitrust and white collar practice groups. I'm based out of New York and San Francisco, although I'm sitting in Westport, Connecticut today. Um, prior to joining Baker in 2019, I was with the Department of Justice for nearly 20 years in a couple different roles, um, senior leadership roles that included uh, at the antitrust division. I was chief of the New York office of the antitrust division for five years. I was also in the US attorney's office in Arizona uh, for a couple years as the chief of the public integrity and financial crimes unit down in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and so what I'm gonna bring here today is talk a bit about uh, what's going on in antitrust and, and also just what, and maybe the effects on the labor markets. But uh, again, thanks for having me, Jack. Oh, a pleasure, thanks. How about yourself, Chris? Thanks, Jack, and uh, glad to be uh, participating with such an esteemed panel. Um, so Chris Hatner here, I've been in the cyber arena. Gosh, I'm going to date myself, Jack, uh, since the early 90s when I was a... So you uh, started when you were 12, kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, as a uh, early uh, undergrad student focused on potential career in law enforcement, I decided to switch gears when a crazy professor sat me down. He said, Chris, the bad guys are going to go from robbing banks with guns to executing complex code over computer networks. And this is back at John Jay College Criminal Justice in the early 90s. And that uh, transitioned me into more of a tech-oriented career. Held several uh, leadership positions ranging from a global CISO at GE Capital, which is where Eric and I worked uh, very closely together. I uh, was a practice leader at Ernst & Young through their uh, cyber risk management practice uh, based in Midtown, New York. I spent uh, the last uh, four years in change um, with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission as the senior cybersecurity advisor to both Chair White and Chairman Clayton and worked very closely with the Financial Banking Information Infrastructure Committee as a senior member uh, through the U.S. Treasury on matters of cyber resilience in the financial markets. Uh, now, uh, back in the private sector, I work on a range of opportunities uh, in the boardroom community through the National Association of Corporate Directors. I do hold a board seat. I serve as a senior advisor across a number of companies and uh, happy to talk about all things cyber, its intersection with the economic activity, and certainly a view on compliance and where there's opportunities to, uh, to grab some uh, you know, we'll call it future career opportunities for the uh, the members here. So awesome. Thanks. How, how about yourself, Anna? 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm thrilled to be here with Eric, Jack, and Chris, and Jeff. And so I, my background is in change management and organization development. And I'm specializing in organizational change, diversity, inclusion, leadership development, and talent management. And I've written, trained, taught, and consulted in these areas. I've worked primarily for Fortune 500 companies, including IBM and PepsiCo, along with leading financial firms that, um, like Bloomberg. Um, I've also worked in nonprofit, um, in healthcare, and the educational institutions. Um, I've contributed to Thomson Reuters' webinar on diversity and inclusion, and co-authored in a Harvard Business article um, on how banks are using behavioral science to prevent scandals, and just recently published an article around behavioral science and its use in the financial industry through um, Thomson Reuters. That's great. Um, and, and my co-host, Eric, ex-New Yorker, <laughs> I'm, what do you go, Connecticut-er? Yes, <laughs> moved out of New York City yesterday, so if I look like I've got some luggage <laughs> under my eyes, that's, that's the reason why. But uh, one, th thanks everyone, and thanks Jack, as, as always, in, in hosting these uh, sessions. Some in the audience may wonder, you know, how do we get very different backgrounds uh, to talk about common issues? Um, I, I like to think compliance, being selfish, cuts across all issues. Um, and today we're going to talk about antitrust, cyber, and the behavioral uh, aspects um, with respect to antitrust and cyber. And these issues are not mutually ex exclusive at, at all. So again, thank you all for, for being with us. And, and we hope to have a really lively, interactive, and fun discussion. And Eric is a little too modest. He's, he's the CCO for a number of top tier investment banks, banks, financial institutions. So he has a wealth of experience. I don't want to say how many years, because he looks so young. So it's going to be no pun intended. With you. <laughs> but, but he spent a vast majority working for really top flight you know, companies. So he really understands compliance from the inside, you know, as a manager, as a CCO, as an executive, and writing about it. So he brings that to the table. But hey, let's jump into really quick. So Chris, let me ask you this. You know, you hear about solar winds, right? It's solar winds, right? That's the... Uh, that, that, that big hack, and then you hear about Russia hacking things, China hacking things. Could, from the inside, dude, you spent so many years doing this. What's the real deal? What do we have to worry about? And what's just like just rhetoric? Well, look, you know, supply chain is definitely a point of uh, interest from an adversarial perspective. Uh, think of it as, you know, if I can take an organization out um, individually, um, that becomes more of an effort. Uh, you say take right? it out. What do you mean? Just, just like you're able to attack it so they just can't do business kind of thing? Well, it's a number of things. It's taking right. it out in terms of causing disruption in business, but also stealing their intellectual property and causing damages. What's interesting about the SolarWinds breach, which was quite massive, and it sparked a, a difference between an individual attack versus a supply chain hack. SolarWinds is used by you know, tens of thousands of companies across the globe, including governments, you know, private sector. So uh, when you're able to attack a company that's so embedded into the fabric of the ecosystem of supply chain, uh, you're able to get a bigger bang for your buck. So now uh, I've got a relatively widespread footprint across a number of institutions where I can enact some type of disruptive damage I can siphon intellectual property 
um, I potentially cause confusion. And now, is, that is that happening right? Is that happening right now? Like it was big news for a while, and then we don't hear it. So, like, but behind the scenes, is there, you know, is this still going on? That they're taking. So it's it's been ongoing for for many years. I mean, the more sophisticated attackers recognize this and are increasingly devoting attention and resourcing targeting the supply chain or a third party service providers, where you get again bigger bang for the buck. And companies that are down the chain in terms of suppliers allow them to compromise a multitude of institutions at once. And look, the damages from cybercrime, according to the World Economic Forum for 2021, is projected to reach $6 trillion in losses. So these are you know, real dollars and cents. This is a, a lucrative business for both state actors, uh, criminal organizations, you know, the, the lone wolf. And you know, I wouldn't discount the insiders that have trusted access to your sensitive resources in the company. Do you, need, do you need to be a hardcore tech person to get in this space? Or, you know, are there people who aren't like, you know, they didn't go for, you know, IT degrees or mechanical engineering or what have you? Yeah, I mean, from a career perspective, look, you know, my career started in, you know, I was light tech. I wasn't a heavy tech or a computer science major. But yeah, I was more interested in the trajectory to law, law enforcement. And then I forced myself uh, in the early, uh, my early 20s to develop some technical skills. But there are other individuals within the cybersecurity ecosystem that lean more towards a governance, risk management, compliance uh, mm -hmm. angle that provide that regulatory expertise to ensure that you have appropriate protections and you understand the implications of not having the right level of defenses and controls. Jack, I, I would add that the skill sets are a reflection of the interdependency first in terms of start to finish when there is a cyber attack or how to prevent, detect, and then respond to a cyber attack, but also the interconnectedness of all the industries, uh, whether vertical, as Chris is describing, um, in terms of the B to C consumer, but also the supply chain behind it, and then all the horizontal industries that are connected to it. And I think Homeland Security, CISA's infrastructure um, uh, pronouncements as it relates to what's critical infrastructure from a cyber point of view, and therefore Homeland Security point of view, highlights the diverse skills that are needed to address these types of issues. So cyber is one piece, an entry point, if you will, but it's really what do you do to prevent, detect, and react to these types of attacks? And to kind of segue into antitrust is companies are becoming more concentrated. Uh, some analysts are talking about merger Mondays. You probably hear that phrase where there's more and more acquisitions. So the concentration of companies and therefore Chris, I don't know if you agree, the likelihood of attacks during all this activity could create more vulnerabilities. Yeah, it certainly can. And, and you know, companies realize that and, and they should be paying more attention to the supply chain exposure, particularly on the exposure associated with a potential acquisition. We've seen in the 2018 SEC guidance on disclosure, it, it places a clear guidance as to to what degree you should be evaluating cyber risk associated with an acquisition. And in terms of, you know, Jack, you, the, the analysis on skill set, yes, you have the very technical day-to-day -day 
operators that are in the trenches, you know, attacking the bad guys, you know, removing them off the network, reversing the malware. But as you crawl up the chain into the boardroom, we're seeing that increasingly disconnect between what the level of cyber risk exposure is from a, we'll call it a tactical perspective and how that expresses downstream to business and economic outcomes. And there's limited uh, generally accepted frameworks and capabilities for evaluating cyber risk with agreed upon practices to help inform senior executives and particularly the board of directors on understanding the true nature and extent of an organization's cyber exposure. So you know, we need some folks that can kind of straddle both the tactical understanding and express those outcomes to the Sounds business good. impact and regulatory impact to, to your point. So there. you don't have to just be, you know, you know, quote unquote tech person to do this there yeah. you're all because mm -hmm. the growth area is so much um, that there are other people. And we're, as we're talking about attacks, I guess, Jeff, there's a lot of attacks on, you know, big tech in terms of, Hey, they're monopolies. They, they're running the table. They control everything, you know, coming from, being in law enforcement for 20 years, now going on the other side, what do you see that's happening in this whole antitrust you know, space? Well, right now you just see a lot of attention on antitrust, probably uh, more attention now uh, than in the last 20 years. And, and it's really because as you said, um, and Eric alluded to it, is across various industries, not just tech, but you're seeing concentration and um, oligopolies or, you know, a small number of players kind of taking the biggest share of the markets. And that can cause uh, concern with um, consumers and if they're paying more, they're not getting quality, right? And, and so right now, there's a lot of uh, interest in antitrust um, because of big tech. I think that's kind of the, the primary um, industry out there, uh, DOJ, as well as the states have filed cases against certain companies uh, in the space for being monopolists. Um, and if, as a monopolist, being a monopoly itself is not illegal. It's what are they doing? How are they abusing their power? And it's that's where you know you really get into the weeds and look at behind behind the curtain to see what they're doing um, to maintain that power. Uh, and, and again, that's happening across various industries in the Senate and the house are both been conducting investigations in multiple industries, but with, as you're right, a focus on big tech. And, and yeah, it's interesting. And it really is across the board, I guess, big tech, because people are familiar with those companies, but it really runs the gamut. Right? It, it does. It, it can be in um, really any industry, uh, healthcare, um, which is obviously so important right now, um, but there's been concentration uh, amongst hospitals. And so, you know, you have maybe vulnerable um, patients who, who aren't able to get access to, to the care they need within an hour or so. Um, so that's obviously an, an area of focus. Um, but you also have food. Um, there was a big cartel case um, about uh, tuna manufacturers or tuna suppliers um, where the CEO ended up going to, to jail. That's so wild. And Because you don't think in those terms, I think, I don't want to speak for everybody, but just like, you don't think of those terms. Chicken you know, boilers like, too. You know, Amazon's yeah. apples, not tuna companies. Yeah, no, antitrust touches everybody. Um, you know, I think you can walk across any industry and, and see how it uh, has been affected by antitrust enforcement or regulation and really, you know, what's on your table 
um, where you're going to 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 eat, um, but also, you know, as as you have things delivered to your house now because you're not you're not going out um, to the store. So it's it's really an everyday issue. And they're also tangential ones because we we spoke the other day, and there seems to be, you know, this poach anti poaching kind of thing. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how. There's this underlying thing for job seekers who may not, I wasn't really aware of this, that could be impacting your job. Yeah, so uh, it, it's always been illegal for companies who compete for labor to agree um, not to solicit each other's employees. There was a big tech, there was actually a big tech case in California. Um, the Department of Justice brought that uh, civilly, so there was, no one was going to jail. But in October of 2016, um, the FTC and DOJ uh, announced that going forward, they're going to pursue those cases criminally, or at least the Department of Justice will pursue those cases criminally. So if, if two companies agree not to go after each other's employees or agree on benefits, wages, not providing raises, um, that is a criminal offense. Um, and you know, human resource folks are really right in the crosshairs and need to be uh, pay attention to what they're doing in, in the markets as they try and go out and recruit folks and making sure that they're not um you know staying away because of an agreement they have with a competitor for that for that labor so is that a type of uh, collusion just like price fixing or bid rigging in this case it's human labor and um, compensation yeah, you know, the, the wage aspect is just like a price fixing case, right? Yeah. You're agreeing on wages or not to increase wages. Um, the the non-solicitation or no poaching of employees, that's almost like allocating customers. You take, you, yeah. you keep your customers, I'll take mine, that's and you just stay away from each other. Yeah. How pervasive is it? Um, well, that's to be determined. I think there's ongoing investigations by the Department of Justice. Um that they've been looking at these for, for several years and they've um, said there's dozens and dozens of investigations into this area. Um, and we've recently seen two um, prosecutions um, in, the, in the healthcare space uh, by the Department of Justice. So it, it's, um, you see it in tech, you see it in healthcare. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, uh, it may be in financial services as well. Um, so it's, it can be just like antitrust, it can be in any industry. And this opens up so many doors because as you can imagine during the pandemic, this is coming from the perspective of a recruiter is that, you know, 80 million Americans filed for unemployment since the pandemic started. It's been just brutal. And, you know, we hear about people getting ghosted. You're not getting feedback, but this is another wrinkle. So it could be possible that you're going and interviewing, you're not getting that job, not because you're not awesome and well qualified, it's because they have an agreement with another company that they're not gonna hire you. So yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's what it boils down to, right? Yeah, of all the obstacles you're facing, that's probably one you didn't think about, but I, certainly it's one that, you know, especially if you're in a, in a field where, um, you know, it could be really anything. It could be anything that license, license where you need licensing, um, any specialty that you have, you know, it, and, you know, there's a tight network of, of companies that those are really your only options because of the specialty that you've built up. Um, it's, it's possible uh, that, you know, this could be going on and, you know, it's something that's um, certainly will be an obstacle to getting in the door. 
The irony also is when people leave to go from one company or another, the, comp the employee usually has to sign some type of agreement or commitment saying that they won't poach their former employer to bring them over or companies would sue the other company when there is poaching. And, and here we are with companies talking to each other saying, you know, from a reciprocity point of view, I won't poach if you won't poach. And that becomes just insular. Yeah, and you're you're seeing states um, be pretty active on the those agreements with employees, those non-competes. Um, California prohibits them. Um, D.C. is coming out with legislation that will 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 certainly uh, prohibit them, as well as we're considering this. Um, provide, uh, you know, any company operating in D.C. will have to tell all of its employees that they they could they can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a notification provision that's being contemplated. So, uh, and certainly President Biden, um, this has always been an issue for him. And uh, this is the reason why DOJ took this stance, essentially, is that uh, it, the White House was looking for, you know, how do we protect labor back in um, late 2016 and in summer of 2016. And this was, uh, FTC and DOJ's response to that White House request. Wow. You know, Anna, speaking, you know, this goes right into your wheelhouse for kind of corporate governance, what happens, you know, behind the scenes. And this week is probably a field day for you with what was going on with Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. And maybe you want to tell people about some of the things they were doing that kind of resonate with you in terms of uh, what could have been bad situations or, or, or really bad PR. But it looks like they're trying to make some inroads to be more, you know, these big banks being more empathetic to their employees. Mm. Oh, thank you. Um, there definitely seems to be a change in the climate in regards to um, employee engagement, um, looking at an employee more than just as a worker, but as a whole person. Um, that's becoming more of a trend. And um, so I think what we're seeing in regards to um, Goldman Sachs or even with Jane Frazier, who's our Citigroup um, chief executive, um, there is an effort to address the concerns of employees. So for example, um, since the pandemic, um, there's definitely with the remote um, work, there's definitely been a blurring of work life and home life and thus, um, what Jane Frazier has done, um, basically she has called for a reset of the way the bank is looking at um, how work is being done. Um, and so, for example, she has declared a reset day um, to be um, on May 28th for employees where it's a, it's a free day for everyone. And um, she's also initiated Zoom free Fridays. Um, so that there could be more of a balance. And she also is designating a hybrid situation whereby um, at least three days will be spent in the office. So, you know, if you think about some of the workplace policies in terms of flexible arrangements, which were parked back in the 70s, um, telecommuting, for example, was always talked about and was definitely a need for a lot of employees to uh, for companies to pursue it didn't gain as much momentum but obviously that's changed given COVID and so forth and we've seen a number of companies especially within the financial industry who are able to trans um 
to seamlessly um, transition into a more of a remote environment, but it's taking this, I guess, I call this more of a uh, forced change as opposed to a planned, thoughtful change, given certain environmental and external factors, you know, with the pandemic and, and, uh, and the social injustices that we're seeing, you know, we have, so we have those external factors and then we, and then the regulations that are coming um, to be like with NASDAQ, um, imposing um, more transparency and diversity amongst the board, um, so we're getting it from different factions and also internally. Um, most recently, um, I was speaking to a number of uh, NYU students um, in an organization communication course and to see, and this is our new entrance into the workforce, there is such a sensitivity and awareness of inclusion, period. So, um, and, and when I use that word, I'm really looking at employees who feel and perceive the level, it, it's really, it's, it's speaking about um, employee perception of the level of commitment that a firm has towards creating an environment of inclusion outside of looking at pure numbers, for example, in terms of representation. So representation is just one part of it, but to move from those types of um, numbers into creating an organizational climate and culture where everyone feels that their unique contribution and perspective is embraced and valued, that's what's happening now. And I think because of the external factors, internal pressures, external pressures, I think firms are really feeling um, the need to address some of these um, very difficult situations. Jack, this is why I use the Drucker phrase that was, you know, or is culture eats strategy for breakfast. I changed the culture meets strategy over breakfast because now there's a convergence of, of the two. Employees are much more empowered and much more vocal and, and that's got to fit into being part of the strategy. So Goldman, I think, is a very good example because 100 hour a week and but also billions of dollars made in a very volatile uh, year from COVID, um, you know, what's right, what's wrong. So you need to look at both the strategic uh, direction of the firm, but also the people involved in executing that strategy. That's the culture. But Eric, can I ask you this two, two parts? And this, this would be for everybody. So, you know, the story Eric is referring to is that, you know, Goldman had um, a group of young analysts, young bankers who happen to probably make, you know, about a, under a hundred grand and 40, 50, 60,000 bonus working a hundred hour week. And they aired their grievance on social media and quickly Goldman tried to do damage control and say, hey, we'll take, you know, we'll give you Saturdays off, which is kind of, kind of, you know, I, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> you would think they would do a little more because even that message we'll give Saturday off doesn't really make it sound like we're really doing something. So what do you think collectively where you know, everybody's been in their respective fields for a long time? Is this going to stick where companies are going to be more caring about the mental health, the well-being of their employees, you know, champion social causes that their workers want, or is this kind of just one snapshot in time and then it's going to go back to the way it was? What, what, what do you all think? Um, Ladies first. Is that? <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Um, 
That is a question that I grapple with. <laughs> oh, see, I thought you'd be confident, yes. No, I was surprised. No, I was waiting for you to no. be able to resounding, absolutely. Well, let me... I'm, I'm approaching this very from the perspective of change in general, um, because you're, you're talking about a conversions of almost mind, body, and spirit, if you will. There's one. There's there's one side whereby um, there are certain mandates that firms need to follow. Then there is the actual belief that inclusion is positive. So I think, or or the mindset. So I th there's a couple of um, push pull tensions here. Mm -hmm. Things, for example, firms that for, like FaceTime for was always for the longest of times um, was a practice that, or belief, if you will, that was very much um, entrenched in a number of companies, right? You have to be there so many hours, otherwise I don't really know if you're working and whatnot. So I think that you've got long held beliefs and practices um, that you're contending with um, and versus the pull of we need change. But so while you have these, these um, factors that are pulling you to change, it's another, it's a resistance factor, right? Do you believe it? Do you want to do it? And so forth. So what's going to happen, I think it's going to be a challenge and, and very important for firms to be able to decrease a dissonance between mindset and philosophy, which is vis-a-vis -vis leadership. This is where leadership plays such an important role to be able to think long-term and to believe um, and, and engage all stakeholders so that there's an ethical and responsible way to respond and to act in this, in this, in this world. So um, versus the actual practices. And so if there's a dissonance or an incongruity between the two, that's gonna create a lot of question, not to mention creating psychological safety within, within companies. That's huge in order for, the, for inclusion and for culture to, to make a long lasting change. Traditionally, organizational change and change cultures and such, 70% of large scale change efforts have failed because of the lack of sustainability. Can I pose a question to see, I'm curious, maybe this sounds tone deaf or politically incorrect. Jeff, I'd imagine in your career, in Chris, in your career, Eric, your career, you guys probably work crazy hours. And in a way, is it a trade-off to succeed? You know, like, like we see the 100 hour work week and we're like, oh, that's horrible, that's terrible. But those young bankers who are making, let's say 150,000 and they're 22, 23, 24 years old could end up making millions of dollars down the road. So. Some of these things is kind of, is it, you know, is it okay to say, hey, I'm going to put in lots of hours, give up my life, defer gratification, immediate gratification for, you know, for long-term success. I mean, is that a thing too? Like, Chris, I'm sure you put in tons of hours to get to where you are. You're not going to be, you know, you know, at the level you were at the SEC without working hard. Same thing for you, Jeff, right? As a partner in a firm, you're probably going to be working around the clock. I'm probably the wrong person to ask, given that cyber never <laughs> sleeps. And you know, yeah. so you are working a lot of hours, right? So, it's like yeah, I mean, even but even as you know, a junior analyst back in the we'll call it the late '90s, 2000, when I was 
hands-on keyboard, you know, maintaining the lights, keeping the enterprise secure. I mean, I'd receive calls at, you know, one, two in the morning. Hey, we have an outage. We have an issue. So you were always on of this before, you know, and I was obviously working from home then. Um, and, or, Hey, we've got to go into the data center and work um, between midnight and 7 a.m. to perform all of our change requests so that uh, the business can continue to operate. So um, there's a degree of, at least within the cybersecurity industry, yes, you, you know, you've got to uh, realize the, the forces working against you in terms of the balance between the demand and, and the supply of, of resources. Um, but cybersecurity is an area that you're, you're constantly, constantly working. And, and, you know, in terms of, you know, the multi-million dollar payout, probably not a great analogy within cybersecurity as compared to an investment banker where, you know, you're, you're more on the, on the buy side, you're informing, you know, tens of millions of dollars in M&A activity. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a personal, you know, introspective, um, decision that you have to make, you know, are you right? It's a, to right? It's this a, on and, and go at it. Right. Like yeah. Jeff, I imagine the hours you put in or are probably going to put in right now as a part of a law firm has to be enormous. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but this is kind of the interesting thing is like, it's, it's, isn't it? Everyone has kind of that choice what to do. Yeah, it, it is a choice. And certainly how you get paid as a lawyer is you bill hours, right? And so yeah. the more you build, the more you get paid. That's, that's the name of the game at most places. Um, but you've got to have perspective on what's important in your life uh, right. and balance that with work. And that's, for me, family is very important. Um, and I think it's difficult in these times where you're, you can be on Zoom all day long. You don't have to travel so you can be with clients that much more. Um, you can do that much more marketing because there's no real downtime. But then you also are making lunches making, you know, breakfast. And those are things I love to do. So, you know, and I would take time out of my day to make sure that I focus on that. And then also have personal time for me that I do my own thing. I play soccer. So on Sunday mornings, everybody knows dad's out on the field, you know, for two hours. And then, then I come back and I work and then I play with the kids and I make dinner when it was my turn. Sometimes mostly I'm, I'm washing dishes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I think it, it is a choice and it's important even as um, somebody entering into, you know, the, the labor force coming out of college, just know, know what you're getting into. Go in wise, uh, eyes wide open, talk to people who are very successful. Um, coming into the law firm uh, that I'm at, I was very impressed with the leadership um, and how they place value on work-life balance. Um, and that's why I, I chose the firm that I did. So it's important. Yeah. Let me ask you a hypothetical question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Eric. I was just going to uh, say, you have to love what you're doing, whether it's work or yeah. life. And hopefully it's life over work. And it took me, you know, decades to, to figure that out and, my, and decades of my wife reminding me. But the other thing, too, just going back to Goldman, is bankers are very privileged. They, they make a lot of money and 150,000 doesn't sound like a lot to some, but that's, that's a lifetime for, for many people. Well, some people are struggling, you know, as, as we speak. So I think it, it is context. It is perspective. It shouldn't solely be about money. You have to enjoy living. You have to make a living, but if you don't have that, 
balance whatever degree it may be, then is it really worth it? And then the CEOs, you know, they make millions, hundreds of millions and, and billions, which is a whole nother topic in and of itself. But, um, you know, this is where going back to the main topic, antitrust and cyber, there, there are risks out there that uh, people need to be focused, energized, enjoying what they're doing um, with the right balance. See, so interesting. I think you hit right in the head. So that's that's like what I, what I would tell when I tell my kids, because you want to find that intersection of something that you're happy, you like doing, and you have the skills to do it. Because if you do, then it's not work. You know, best case, it's kind of fun because you enjoy doing it. Like I can tell Eric, you enjoyed being a CCO. And so if you're working long hours and all that, it probably isn't as bad as somebody else who's like outside in a hundred degrees working on the highway doing construction that's just miserable doing it, but they have to pay the bill. So it's you, if you like what you do and you're good at it right. and you make money at it, that's like the perfect thing, you know? Um, yeah. and Anna, I want, see, this is also, I think what you were alluding to before uh, you were talking about, I, I've noticed and I'm curious about what you guys see as well, is that with my kids who are Gen Z's and there are a lot of young people in my office, they have a very different perspective of work-life balance than a Gen X or baby boomer. And they want definitely, it seems, I think this is what you're talking about too. They want that balance to have a life, but have a career. And they want, and also they want companies that share their social issues, their political issues. Ethical. I right? think, yeah, and if I could just jump in for a second. Um, I, I think all the points that you said you have made is, is so important. I, I think also I would just add that self-awareness and considering the stage in your career is our other are two other considerations in addition. Um, but I would agree, Jack, that at least from speaking to um, college students and graduate students today, um, and even the last several years, there's definitely more of a call for like social responsibility and awareness, and then finding firms that share those same values. Because I think, and if you think about traditionally in terms of looking for jobs and so forth, there's been a push, depending if it's a demand, demand versus supply in terms of the labor market, but folks who are looking for a job feel that they have to take whatever position is out there and almost sell their souls and don't really, sometimes don't consider that it's an interview process of both, right? not only are you selling yourself as a candidate, but also identifying a firm that shares um, same values and philosophies and, and balance. Um, and I think what I'm seeing now is there's a turn, if you will, of, of students and, and young entrants coming now who are saying, no, I'm going to interview the company and to ensure that they have the same philosophies as I do. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, is looking at those practices too. Um, one student asked me, you know, is there a way for us to, to um, know what the culture is like, or if there is a transgression that's done, how do we know that the company is going to do something about it? I mean, these are some hard questions um, that, that students are looking or young uh, entrants are looking at now. So I think it, there's definitely a change. So yeah. where it's much more mindful and intentional in terms of the job search from a, from a job seek perspective. Now what happens, Ada, like Chris, Jeff, you know, you know, Eric, in your respective fields, you know, cybersecurity, law, investment banking, compliance, those are like lots of our jobs. I mean, do you think the culture could change where 
it would offer everything that Anna's talking about, or it's so entrenched that it's going to be a hard battle. Again, I'm probably the wrong person to ask, um, <laughs> but there, there's a, uh, again, a supply and demand imbalance between the you know, cyber uh, from a resource pool perspective. Uh, globally, there are- When you say that, do you mean that there's not enough people to hire? Is that- Yeah. So it's it's a, a systemic issue. So it's a combination of you know, the tolerance and intensity of attacks on organizations, the investments that the board and the you know the enterprise risk management committee has approved and applied to that, and the level of resources that we have access to, um, and I could tell you just working in universities, like the top ten universities that have uh, strong uh, computer sciences programs, don't mandate cybersecurity as a prerequisite, which is mind-boggling. Mm. Uh, so we're not producing enough talent in the university system. Um, the, you know, the boards uh, and the C-suites not approving the headcount. Why is it Because it? it would seem so rational to do that. I think the, the students are um, they're more lean towards uh, creativity, okay. um, that makes sense. You know, mobile app platforms, uh, crypto is now a growing space. But again, it, it's one of those areas that it also depends on the type of role, right? You, know, you, you may decide, hey, you know, I'm happy with you know, a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year, and I know I have a fixed uh, set of responsibilities, and this is what I'm do day in and day out. And if you're not interested in advancing and progressing, um, that means that you're likely not going to tack on another ten to twenty hours a week. Um, so, it really, decide. You know, it's depending on your personal uh, lifestyle decisions and and your you know desire to, to you know project your uh, your career forward. Um, but again, cyber is one of those areas, where particularly if you're in the trenches on the operational side, um, it becomes very challenging to, to limit the amount of um, you know, hours that you're going to commit to the job. So in a, in a way, because of that imbalance, it seems like if you have people who want to get a work-life balance, whatever, companies might have to bend over backwards to say, yeah, if you have the skills and background, you want to do it, come aboard. Is that... <laughs> Yeah, retention is a big problem. I mean, I have many colleagues that are chief information security officers, and um, there's this constant challenge of you know burning out the the junior to mid level uh, staff. Um, you know, there's um, you know compensation challenges as well. You know, it's not unusual for our, uh, even like a senior executive, let's call it a chief information security officer, to move from company to company over a five year span. Let's say three companies. And their compensation jumps by 50 percentage points. So, you know, we're all kind of clamoring for that same shallow pool of talent. Uh, with, so you've got to get creative. I think you've got to have uh, cultural dynamics. There needs to be an ethical pull. Um, there needs to be a social component there. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a former city grouper, uh, so I'm keen on you know, maybe uh, retracting a bit on Zoom calls on Fridays, maybe half a day Fridays, like when I was working at City back in, you know, the, the early 2000s, I recall, you know, half day Fridays and uh, during the summer. And, you know, we'd work from home. I had a couple of folks that lived down the Jersey Shore. We dial in, we do our work to, you know, to, you know noon, one o'clock, and everyone kind of log off and enjoy the weekend. Uh, so you've got to get creative in terms of yeah, creating that uh, stickiness. Jeff, do you see that? Did you see that in the government and also in the private sector, in, in, the, in the law field? No. they're kind of embracing these new uh yeah, in, i mean government 
um, working for DOJ, there's a couple of things there. Um, one, um, you know, they call it the Justice Department, right? So there's a value in the name. Um, and you're very, when you go to the Justice Department, you're very proud. Um, and you, you know you're, you're there to do the work for the people. And that's just what you bring to, to the job. You're there for public service. And so, but you're, then you're around all those people as well. So there's a culture. Um, you know, big, big law is, is, is different, right? It's, um, you, you, are, you are expected uh, to bring in clients and, and work as, as, as hard as you can to, to serve them. And that, that's the job, um, you know? And I think uh, it's something that I, I really like doing because I still bring that justice with me I'm still looking for fairness and you can do that in big law where you're, you're trying to do what's best for your client, but also tell DOJ what's fair. And so, you know, hours worked I, for me, it's, it's something that I, I try and maintain the work-life balance. Um, but it's also something I love to do. And so I'm going to, you know, work when I can and play when I can. Hypothetically, if I had a son, Jake, who's going to be graduating college soon is and is looking maybe to go to law school and big law. Is that advisable or it's, or, or so saturated hypothetically, you know? Yeah. Hypothetically. <laughs> what do you think? I, that... I, there, there's so with law, there's so many avenues that you yeah. can go into, right? There's um, you can work for the government, nonprofits. You can even go into the business side. You can go into compliance. So it can open up so many doors and, you know, during law school, you, you can try out different places and it's a good, uh, I think can be a healthy experience, but also can be very unhealthy. Um, and it's a lot of hours and you have to decide where you're going to put those hours into work and getting a grades and get the big job and uh, on wall street or, um, at the big firm. Uh, but then you've got those expectations that you're going to perform and you're going to have to work those hours. Um, because that's that's what the job is um, in, in you know at the big law firms. Hey, Jeff, um, it, it, I was just thinking. I think also from a if it was a female um, looking to become partner, you, you've got a, another set of challenges that that one would have to consider as well. Um, just in terms of you know like if you are going to be a rain, that's a that's the expectation as a partner, right? To be a rainmaker. Yeah. So when do these opportunities to bring in new business occur? Is it after certain hours and so forth? And, and so for a lot of females, um, well, let me put it this way. Um, there is a second shift, right? There's work and then still maintaining the responsibility of family in, in some cases. So I think that's, I guess wanted to, to, to throw that in, that that's something to consider as well. It, it, if it's a, a woman looking to become partner in that there are challenges that they need to be aware of as well. And I think that's, you know, talking about changes, for example, that um, uh, corporations could do or in certain fields that you know, maybe that would be an area for, for a law firm or, or law, for example, to look at it, are there ways to change practices so that it is much more um, supportive of all folks. Jack, I think just taking the different themes into your question, if I could paraphrase, is ESG and long-term stakeholderism here to stay versus 
you know, are we going to go back to short-term profit maximization and utilize the staff, you know, to, to the bare bone, 100 hours a week, so to speak? I think right now, at least next two to four years and probably beyond because the next generation of Gen Zs and millennials that are our future leaders are going to expect um, a greater work-life balance, are going to expect uh, a different work environment ethically and, and otherwise. And that may mean less profit, but I think longer term, um, not to sound Pollyanna, but I think the demands are there to have more diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And CEOs should not expect that this is going to pass over in terms of um, short term. So that, that pressure, if anything, is, is, is going to build. And that means, you know, skill set wise, a couple other uh, waves going on. Just going back to the main theme of antitrust and cyber, enforcement actions are going to increase. So that means the demand for cyber people, the demand for people that are experts in, in antitrust, particularly in the technology field, uh, is going to grow, but it needs to be now calibrated in a way that there is work, but there's also life that needs to be addressed by the CEOs. So final point is to Chris's earlier point, um, the board needs to be made more aware, management needs to change and actually invest in the technology to make work more efficient. A lot of it is still manual labor, so to speak, and it feels like working on, you know, uh, the the construction very manual but in fact the technology is is out there so skill set people should get more familiarized with ai uh, they don't have to be tech experts but certainly comfortable with ai and robotics because that is a necessity and and other firms are already pulling ahead that's great to, eric and everyone else is there i can't believe an hour just flew by is there is there anything that maybe Eric and I didn't ask or bring up that you feel, oh my gosh, before before it's over, hey, here's a trend, here's something that I'd like to just bring it to some to everyone's attention. If I may, I just I do, and Eric, I'm going to support your point on this. I do see a trend in companies moving forward, um, and I think having a different set of values from the generations that are coming um, forth is going to be another added pressure, um, which will force change. Um, I, you know, and I, I want to just mention that um, the fact, the way I see it is you've got, in terms of culture, there's a preventative piece of it, and then there's a proactive slash um, positive response to situations that emerged, such as in the Goldman Sachs situation, and they were able to respond positively to um, um, the concerns that the analysts have brought forth. Um, so I think there is hope, but I think the key here is sustainability um, and ensuring that, you know, it, what we're seeing thus far is just a lot of, um, there's, there's mandates for the top, let's say vis-a-vis -vis, um, changes in, in more diversity at the board level, but I think that needs to cascade down throughout the whole organization and workforce so that there is that diversity of thought, um, perspective, and so forth, and, and background. Um, and certainly, it, you know, focusing on the mid-management piece 
Um, according to Gallup, they, even though I believe it was like 39, 39% um, employee engagement as of 2020, I believe that was the number. Um, however, yes, it was 30, 39% in January, 2020. However, for the group that was most disengaged were this mid-management. So I think where there could be a lot of room for improvement. It's not permeating down yeah. in terms of the culture. So the yeah. top says all the right things, but the middle, it's business That's as usual. Right. Yes, yeah. and we need the training and the support yeah. to make to make this change happen. I've seen that hands-on, yep. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll continue with um, the diversity and inclusion and how we're seeing uh, change there, real change. Because um, companies are asking for law firms to bring forth diverse teams. And it, it's essential for me to work with and have solid team members who are diverse. So we're bringing different perspectives so we can really, and our clients are most often major, you know, Fortune 100 companies. And so if I'm seeing that and I'm developing teams with that eye, I think, you know, that is the longer view and mm -hmm. I'm, you know, and I'm glad to be part of it. Chris? Yeah, say so one, one point just to kind of bring home the, you know, concept of compliance to cyber, uh, particularly as we see the new administration, you know, spinning up, we're going to see, you know, heightened expectations from a privacy perspective, particularly as, Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, coming from California, um, being the Attorney General, will spearhead efforts uh, that align with the California Privacy Rights Act. Uh, we're seeing uh, within the Senate uh, leadership anticipate greater collaboration with the House on cyber, uh, more of a unified front by the Democrats to spur a series of bills around cybersecurity, incident reporting, consumer privacy. Um, Senators uh, Sherrod uh, Brown and Pat Tooney have agreed to furthering technology concerns in the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, Senator Reid just uh, this week uh, has released uh, or reintroduced a bipartisan bill that will require companies to tell investors whether or not they have a board member with cyber expertise, cyber expertise who could be a naming and shaming uh, activity. Um, the Salarium Commission um, had issued uh, the recommendation to extend or amend Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 to mandate um, certain accountability at the corporate level, including certain cybersecurity disclosures by publicly traded companies. And then recently, the New York Department of Financial Services issued a framework by which uh, the insurance industry should be thinking about how do they size cyber insurance in terms of the expression of uh, loss estimates and ensuring that their portfolios are, are sound. Um, so um, expect more um, you know, heightened activity in the cyber and regulatory arena. I, I agree. And Jack, just to pull it all together, what we've been talking about today and in, in past sessions is, I, I do think compliance is here to stay. Uh, and it's not being self-serving because one F, new FTC commissioner um, to be or nominee, uh, Lena Khan, Rohit, uh, Chopra, uh, Gary Gensler, they're very strong advocates for the consumer protecting um, government facilities, um, cyber, privacy. 
um, antitrust, there's going to be more supervision, more intensity, more enforcement action. And so th th there are going to be competing uh, pressures in terms of work-life balance, but that's counteracted by the long-term aspect of, of um, looking out for the society, looking out for the community and, and employees versus short-term earn as much money uh, and share prices as possible. So the burnout should start diminishing because employees are more empowered, society is more empowered, um, and the aspect towards long-term protection uh, for communities and society and, and employees, it's compliance, cyber, um, and enforcement. That's, those are gonna be the, the three pillars because um, otherwise government, um, government uh, sentiment is, is not gonna be there and the fine is gonna be much, much greater and the technology has to be there. That's great. That's, that's a great way to kind of wrap everything up. And I want to thank everybody for coming on. I think this was a really great conversation. And for the people watching it now and watch it later on, I think got great exposure into a whole lot of themes, whole lot of issues, getting getting a taste of uh, the cybersecurity, what's going on in antitrust, uh, compliance, uh, diversity, inclusion, corporate governance. So kind of put a lot in there. And if, you, if everyone's okay with it, when we usually what we'll do is kind of just tighten it up, edit it, and then we could put on your LinkedIn bios and so people could reach you if that's okay with everybody. Sure. So that people want to contact you or reach out or you know get clients or whatever the case may be, we'll put it on there if that's all right. And uh, and then I'll share it, we'll share it with you once we have that. So thank you everybody. This was really great. I think this is a really great you know conversation. I think people are gonna learn a whole lot. And that's the goal and, and give them some ideas about what areas are growing and where they can maybe pivot their jobs, you know, in their career towards. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the WeCruiter podcast. If you want to check out other great content from WeCruiter, make sure to visit us at WeCruiter.io. That's W-E-C-R-U-I-C-R dot I-O. We offer tons of great resources for job seekers and professionals, so make sure to check us out today.